Welcome to the Empowered Women's Podcast. If you're looking for the answers around complex relationship, dating, marriage, and breakup issues, then keep it locked as this is your operation manual to relationship success. We are available to listen to on six different podcast platforms for you to stream, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, releasing a new show every Monday morning. We are one of the few relationship podcasts on the planet that interviews the most qualified relationship coaches, marriage counselors, authors on love, and psychologists around the world. If you have had enough of one toxic connection after another, then hit the subscribe or plus button to be the first to know when a new episode has been released. Welcome back to the tail end of season two of this podcast. I have a really fascinating guest with me today. Her name is Jennifer Jennifer Moore. She's an author of Amazon bestseller book, Empathic Mastery, the founder and headmistress of the Empathic Mastery Academy and Fairy Godmother Apprenticeship Program and host of the Empathic Mastery Show podcast. She's a master trainer for EFT International and a mentor and healer for other highly sensitive empathic women. She's an intuitive from the get-go and Jennifer has experienced her first prophetic dream when she was only nine years old and she's been navigating her extrasensory awareness ever since. She is supporting intuitives, lightworkers, and creatives, like all of you listening, to use your abilities for good, basically Jen's greatest passion. So you can learn more at empathicmastery.com, and her details will be below. So Jen, thank you, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Amanda. I've been really looking forward to this conversation I'm Amazing. so glad to be here. Yeah, it's going to be so nice. Yeah. So today we're actually doing two episodes back to back. So this we week, are. yeah, this week we're going to be chatting about the dynamic connection between empaths and narcissists. And then next mm-hmm. week we're going to be talking about tapping an EFT work to help people work through relationship issues by shifting their thoughts, feelings, and energy. So today we're kind of going to look at ripping the root out and then how to sort of fix it next week. So I've got a few questions for you. Obviously, you're quite dynamic. So my first question to you is we've got empaths, psychics, intuitives, and mediums. What's the difference and can someone be all of the above? So first off, to answer the second half of the question, absolutely, somebody can be all of the above. And what is common with all of these qualities is somebody who has the ability to pick up on information that is not obvious, that is not seen by the naked eye or the, you know, the naked eye, that is information that does not like paranormal extrasensory perception like that that all of these characteristics have the ability to pick up things that we should not know <laughs> that that it doesn't make sense that it's not necessarily rational and lo- or logical the best explanation i've heard that would be the distinction between what's the difference between a psychic and a medium is that mm. a psychic is picking up information from the living world and a medium is picking up information from the other side from mm-hmm. the spirit world mm. um the difference the shortest simplest explanation about an empath is that where 
somebody who is like a, so a psychic is getting information and usually the information is coming in mentally like it's like you know you're getting information you recognize that it's coming from some outside source maybe it's coming through as visions which would be a clairvoyant maybe it's coming through as sound or words which is more clairaudient maybe it's coming through as like you just know things which is claircognizance or maybe you just are sensing something that would be clairsentience but the thing is that in all of these ways of being psychic, you understand that it's not yours, that you understand that it's coming from outside of yourself and that you're picking up information. Um, two, and I find that it tends to be much more about the head, like it's more of a mental quality. Mm. Whereas in my experience, intuition is more of this felt gut sense that tends to live in our gut, like literally in our intestines and our solar plexus and our heart. That it's kind of like this quality or this knowing that is in our body. Mm. And for me, intuition is very calm. I just generally know something. I don't have a lot of reactivity to it. I don't have a lot of fear about it. Mm. Might be like, oh, that person is going to die. But it's mm. not like it's not like I'm freaking out about it. Um, and the same is true for me with psychic ability. Like it's not scary. It's just information. But and and like I said, being a medium mm. is very similar to being psychic. It's just that you're communicating with or you're getting information from a different source. Yeah. Empaths, on the other hand, also are very open to receiving information and are picking up the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the energy from the world around them. But unlike any of these other kinds of qualities, they filter the information as if it's their own. And so what makes this really confusing is where if you had like clairsentience, where you could sense that there was sadness around you, yeah. you'd be like, oh, I'm really sensing sadness. The empath goes from waking up feeling totally fine at the beginning of the day and suddenly maybe goes, goes to the grocery store or gets on a bus or has a conversation with somebody. And the next thing they know, they are overcome with sadness. Mm. But the thing is, they feel it as if it's their own. And so they're like, why am I suddenly feeling so sad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned in the bio that, you know, I had my first prophetic dream when I was nine. And I didn't put this together until I'd been on a couple podcasts, actually, about how much of an empath I was in that. So when I was nine years old, I dreamed, I had this horrible, like I had this awful dream that my mom died. And mm. I dreamed that, like, I dreamed that she had fallen. It was so weird. Like, I dreamed she fell over the banister of the stairs and she just, like, fell to her death. Oh, wow. And it was awful. I was nine years old. I spent the entire day, like, it was the worst day of my nine-year-old life. I was miserable. And at the end of the day, so I was feeling sad. I was feeling despondent. I was feeling, like, just really despairing, really upset. Yeah. As and you at the would. end of the day... As I would. And mm. at the end of the day, at dinner, my mother, who is alive, and she still is to this day, my mother, or at least as of the recording of this. Welcome to this short ad break. Not sure if you're aware, but I'm a personal trainer and have been for years now. So if you like the idea of training and being educated on how to eat for better health, 
then maybe it's time to hire me as your personal coach. You can start feeling confident, self-assured and healthy again, so you can attract the best kinds of lovers and friendships into your life today. You can apply for online or face-to-face coaching with me, where I will take you through a hybrid fitness system that covers the three pillars to success, where I take you through the deep work of mindset principles and help you achieve breakthroughs, guide you to understand meal preparation for your goals, and customize your weight training program to help you build a healthy physique that you can be proud of. Find the application link in the show notes of this episode. Back to the show. My mother, my mother says, oh, so-and-so's mother died last night of breast cancer. And this person happened to have been my very first BFF. Like they were like, I met her when I was three. She Mm. was my best friend until she and her family moved to another state a couple, like a couple years later. So maybe when she was like six or like when I was like six or seven, they mm. moved. So I was friends, like she, but she was my first bud. And the night her mother died, I dreamed my mother died. But the thing that makes this different than just mm. having psychic ability is that I didn't interpret it as like, I didn't dream about her and her mom dying. Yep. I interpreted it through my filter I felt her feelings as if they were my own, and I dreamed about the experience as if it was my experience. Yeah. And so, for me, I had, I was picking up the information, but I was translating it through the empath filter. As you asked earlier, though, can you have all of these? Yes, absolutely you can. Mm. Part of it, though, is... And why it's so important to start understanding what it means to be an empath is that if you are an empath, you don't know what ends up if you're not mindful of it. Because you can be feeling things and not realize that you're getting it from another place. Interestingly, personally, I find it's intuition that I need to use a lot of the time in order to recognize like what's mine, what's not mine, What's coming from outside of me? What is my stuff that I just need to deal with? And that's often sort of an intuitive thing. But so hopefully that answers the question about like all of those. Yeah. I wanted to ask you though, do, are you allowed to mention what happened with your friend's mom? Like how did she actually pass away? She had breast cancer. She had breast cancer. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So she, yeah. So she, I, and I never, ever spoke to her again. Like we were not, like we didn't, I mean, that was, it was at a time where it's like, I mean, we were little kids, like I was nine. So it wasn't like we were like pen pals or anything. And, um, I never like, so, so like once they moved to another state, that was the other thing I had not spoken to her in like three years when her mother died. And so all I can imagine is that like her mom was probably in a hospital mm. and died in a hospital. The the randomness of of like like it was my 9-year-old brain that interpreted. And that's the thing about any time we're getting information, yeah. the challenge is there's there's sort of like the margin for error that has to do with being human and the fact that like we interpret information through our filters. So like my 9-year-old self the closest I could come to making sense of any of it was like my mom falling over a banister. But, um, you know, that was certainly not how this woman died. She died, she died sadly from cancer. Yeah. So how did you receive that information? 
Um, I received it as, so I personally received it as a dream, like it was a vivid, vivid dream. But in terms of learning about the woman dying, I think yeah. my mom just was talking to a neighbor. Oh, and, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. I've never actually asked that question, but like, how did she even know that? But I mean, we were, you know, we were like in your typical classic, like everybody knows everybody else's business, suburban neighborhood. Yep. Yep. In you the know, old days, it was so much more. Yeah. It, it was kind of like so the old much Facebook. That was Facebook back then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you had to and actually so talk to people. all I can imagine, all I can imagine is that the mother, so we were a triad. There was me, this girl, and then there was this other woman or now then girl, but this other girl who was like BFFs with this girl as well. And I actually was like this, I was kind of like, I was kind of the tag along because I was a little bit younger than both of them. And basically the mothers threw me into the group, but they were already pretty close. But I'm just sort of figuring that what probably happened was that the mom of the other friend of this girl was connected to them and she knew the deal and then she told my mother. So Right, okay. That yeah. that must be how it happened. Yeah. yeah. But the timing nonetheless was, you know The timing was spectacular. Like yeah. there was and I you know and the thing that's kind of amazing is like there are plenty of people who could have just had that happen and thought nothing of it and just mm. kind of been like, ah, you know, like pay no attention, like nothing to see here, people move along. It could have been so easy to have just imagined, like not even interpreted it this way. But there was a part of me that knew, like knew that I was experienced, like I knew that the reason I had this dream and the reason that I mm. felt so lousy all day was because of this other person's mom dying. And, and is that what made it different from an ordinary dream was how you felt when you wake up? Just the dream? Um, it was a combination of... It was a combination of, for one thing, it was a very unusual dream. Like, yeah. it was not your standard dream. Mm. But it also, I don't know if you've had a lot of prophetic dream or, you know, dreams where you're getting information. For mm. me, mm. dreams lot. where yeah. information is coming through are more vivid. They mm. feel more real. They don't have the same kind of, like like weird like uh symbolism and transition symbolism like and, and like yeah. like you're watching uh like oh who is that i'm trying to think of like the weird italian filmmaker from the 1960s who did those really he's an m word anyway there's this italian yeah. filmmaker i'm so i'm sure somebody's listening to it and they're like it's that guy um but anyway <laughs> there's like i'm just thinking about like there's like uh you know, like that, uh, that whole sort of like dream montage, things shifting. My experience with prophetic dreams is that they are a lot more like you're kind of like placed in reality and you're kind mm -hmm. of seeing something. And it tends to be a lot more sharp. It tends to be a lot more clear. It tends to be a lot more vivid. And it also tends to go make more sense in my experience. Like it's more yeah. like it moves in a natural progression in a succession. Feels like you're actually yeah. there. Like I can agree. I yes. had a dream before I moved into state. I asked for really clear uh, confirmation that I was making the right move because it was in lockdown and stuff like that. And I was like, first time I'd sort of gotten up and left um, the state, let alone the next suburb. So I was always used to just living in the same mm. suburb and what have you as Europeans tend to do. They stay close to their, you know, their close people and family and stuff like that. Anyway, I had a dream that I was in this red car with two other people and these 
like teenagers that were dressed in school uniform were um, banging on the window and they were pointing to the roof of the car. Now the car was red and I'm like, what's your problem? Like what's wrong? Anyway, I get out of the car and they're going, look, look what's on the car. Anyway, all of a sudden uh, it looked like a tattoo of Mother Mary had appeared on the roof of the car right? And it was three hands interlaced. So the Holy Trinity, one, two, three. And I'm like, whoa, if that's not a symbol of a confirmation. So I looked into that and it was basically a sign of good luck and um, confirming whatever it is that you're questioning. And I was like, wow. I was like, that could not have been, like I'm really protected and I'm very in tune and, and stuff like that. But sometimes there are those dreams that they are so clear that you will never forget them for years to come. And I think that can almost separate a prophetic dream or a dream of confirmation versus just a normal dream of like weird transitions, weird symbolism and stuff like that. But Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, and I used to have dreams. I used to have dreams where, um, when I was younger, where especially like boyfriends would come and visit me in my dreams. And then I would like, or friends, and I would call them up and I'd be like, I had a dream about you last night. And they're like, oh yeah, I had a dream about you too. And it was like, but there would be these qualities of certain dreams where it was like, we were visiting each other. We were going, we were, we were connecting with each other. And, um, but and and like you said, the memory, like I remember these dreams. There's a vividness to these dreams, like mm-hmm. they've never quite changed. And I, I kind of feel like you could try to explain it, but instinctively, I think we all know the difference. Like if you, you know, yeah. you just know, like what's just a junk dream that is your subconscious mind trying to process stuff. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and I have weird junk dreams mm-hmm. versus. When are you getting really valuable information that you that that is about something important that you need to know? Yes, totally. Yeah. So, why do you feel that empathy would be so crucial for empaths? So, first off, I want to say that ironically, a lot of times when an empath is drowning in the mental, emotional, and empathic soup, it's really hard to have empathy. Because when you're picking up on other people's suffering, but you are experiencing it as if it is your own, it's hard to have empathy about what another person is going through. Because Mm. you're so stuck in feeling the pain that it becomes more about you and the self-centered experience of that, and it's not easy to detach from it. And so empaths need empathy for a couple reasons. One, because we Mm. all need empathy. Mm. But two, because empathy starts allowing us to separate from the person who's experiencing what they're going through. Mm. And instead of it being like, oh my God, I'm having all the feels and, and, and I'm so sad, like, I'm so sad about that person's experience. We can be like, I can acknowledge that that person is going through this incredible thing and I can imagine how hard it is, but I can also recognize that I am not the person going through this. Mm. And I'll give you an example that was kind of like a little bit of a, um, I don't know, like a, a, a slap upside my head was right around the time that the war broke out in Ukraine. 
I mm-hmm. was I was watching all the social media posting of like all the people fleeing the cities and like they had their cats and their cat carriers and their dog on the leash. And it was so heartbreaking to see it. Mm. And I kept on sort of like visually like like imagining myself like fleeing my house with my dog on my leash and my cat and my cat my two cats and a cat carrier. Mm. And I kept on having this image of like what it was like to be there. And then at a certain point I'm like you are not going through this. Your distress about having to relocate your pets, like your imaginary distress about having to relocate your pets mm. is not the reality of what you're going through. You are safe. You are living in, you know, a sheltered, you, you know, you have resources, you're sheltered, you're in a part of the world that is not volatile right now. You're okay. This is not your reality. Mm. And if anything, it's actually kind of self-centered and a little bit like it's like you you lost perspective. If you're going down the rabbit hole of imagining yourself in Ukraine when you're not there. And so what I was able to do for myself was just kind of be like, you know what, let's back this truck up Mm -hmm. and let's stop identifying and, and perseverating and imagining, uh, like I, I was like, stop imagining yourself in that situation and instead cultivate compassion, like cultivate gratitude that I'm not there and compassion for the people who are there. So I really think that empathy is something that ironically, like I said, empaths sometimes lack because we are so lost in the feels that mm. we just cannot, like, have empathy for another person. We're just drowning. We're just too stuck. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's probably the first time I've actually ever heard that about an empath. Yeah. So that's really, really yeah. interesting. And I guess the next question is, and you've probably already um, answered that, is why is it essential for empathic people to learn how to control their sensitivities? So I've sort of started hinting at that, but this is a huge question, and there are so many pieces to this. So number one, bottom line, we are no help to the world if we are drowning in everybody else's stuff. If we are feeling pain, if we are... In If we are mentally spinning out, if we are emotionally distressed, if we are in a state of constant anxiety and panic and worry and fear and sadness and you name it, mm. we cannot be helpful. We just mm-hmm. can't. Mm. All we can do is put fires out and hope that we can just like keep on treading water and get to the other side. Empaths have an amazing, we have the ability to either pick up and absorb the distress and the suffering that is going on in the world and amplify it, or we have the ability to acknowledge the distress and the suffering that is going on in the world, calm our own nervous systems down, and become beacons for calm, love, and healing Mm. that allows us to broadcast an alternative. But if we do not get control over our empathic sensitivity, if we do not like deal with the impact of being an empath, all we're going to do is we're going to amplify the mess and we're just going to contribute to it. We're not going to be part of the solution. We're going to be part of the problem. And especially like, you know, the Ukraine story, it's like, I'm not helping anybody by contributing to the distress 
by doubling down on a distress that's not even mine. All I'm doing is kind of, it's like I'm adding one more hungry mouth to the world to feed instead of sticking, you know, staying, like staying in my own lane. So I think that, you know, and the other thing is like, so that's like a global perspective of why do we need to do it for the planet? Because Mm. empaths want to help the planet. Most of us are like, sometimes we're even more comfortable with the idea of helping other people than we are with the idea of helping ourselves. But another reason why we need to be able to get a handle on this is because it is not a badge of honor to be an empath. It is not easy to be an empath. This is not something that I would necessarily wish on somebody Mm. because it is exhausting. It is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It is intense. It can be scary. And the thing is that when we do not have control over our empathic sensitivity, we lose ourselves and we, and we, and it just, we're miserable. Mm. Like we are miserable. And so that's another really big reason why we need to get a handle on it. Well, we, why we need to get control over it is because if we do not control it, it will control us. Yeah. If we are not in charge, it basically runs the show. It, it's down in the basement pulling all the circuit breakers and it is basically making us like it making us miserable. And so that is the other really big reason why it's really important to get a handle on it and start understanding it. Because if we do not, we, we, we're miserable. And yeah. that means we cannot live the life we're meant to live. We cannot do the things we're here on the planet to do. Mm. We never write the book we were meant to write. We never paint the paintings we were meant to paint. We never start the exercise programs that we wanted to start. We never become the dancer we wanted to be. We may never even find the beloved that we were seeking and instead end up in a relationship with a narcissist. So yeah, all which we're going to talk about today. Which yeah. is what we're going to talk about, yeah. Yeah, okay. So before we get into that, how did you actually pull yourself out of the empathic whirlpool? Like what did it really take for you to get to where you are today? It took a lot, you know, and you and I are going to talk a lot more about this in the next episode, including giving up sugar. Because Mm. for me, cleaning up my lifestyle was one of the first things that I had to do. I had to quit smoking. I had to stop eating sugar by the, by the poundful. Mm. And I really needed to look at what were the things that I was doing that were causing me harm. And for me, one of the very first places was about cigarettes and sugar, because Mm. I was self-medicating with both of those to try to get relief. But the problem with both of those things is that they give you temporary relief but long-term really compromise your emotional stability, your psychic filters and shields, and Mm. make you much more susceptible to taking things on. So it started with like making some physical changes in my life, like looking at my relationship with drugs and alcohol, looking at Mm. my relationship with sugar, looking Mm. at my relationship with cigarettes, stopping the things that were temporarily helping, but in Mm. the long-term causing problems. Mm -hmm. And... It was a gradual process. What I will say is that for me, it has been a journey of coming to understand what it means to be an empath. Mm. And then from that, being able to start learning how to take care of myself. And from this came the five steps of empathic mastery 
that is what this entire 380-page book is written about. Yeah. And yeah. what I discovered is that in order to really effectively get ourselves out of, like, you know, get out of the skid, get out of that empathic whirlpool, mm. first we have to recognize, like, the five steps are recognize, release, protect, connect, and act. Mm. And the thing is, recognize has four stages to it, at least. That's what at least I know now, but I keep on yeah. getting more information about recognize. So the first step of recognize is recognize that you're an empath. And if you grew up in a family that's been gaslighting you, that's been telling you you're too sensitive, that you're overreacting, that you're taking things too personally, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. What pink elephant in the middle of the room? Mm -hmm. There's no problem here. Mm -hmm. If, if you've grown up with that, then you might not even recognize that you are picking up legitimate things mm. because every time you said you felt something, you were being invalidated for what you were picking up on. Yep. So the first step is just claiming the identity and saying, this is what I am and I am sensitive and I am picking up legitimate information. Yeah. Then the second, so first part of recognize is just recognizing ourselves as an empath. The second part is recognizing when we're out of sorts and feeling wonky mm. because a lot of times, like we don't, like especially as an empath, we can be so sensitive, we don't even know what's ours, what's not ours, and how we're really feeling. And so starting to understand the baseline of when am I just me versus when am I feeling somebody else's stuff, mm. like recognizing that we're out of sorts, that I was fine earlier today, now I'm feeling completely out of, out of like just totally disoriented, something's going on. Mm. And from that, coming to recognize is this mine? Am I carrying something that's not mine? And I will tell you that for me, like I'll always put my hands on my heart, close my eyes and ask myself the question, is this mine? And probably like 90% of the time, the answer is yes and. <laughs> that some of it is mine, some of it is my own stuff that I need to address, but mm -hmm. a lot of it is coming from outside of me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll get an answer where it's like, it's all yours. And other times I'll get the answer, oh, this is totally coming. Like, this is not even yours. This is about other people's stuff. Yeah. And, um, but knowing that question of like, is this mine and getting that answer. And then the final part of recognize so far that I understand is like, what's mine? What's not mine? And starting to be able to discern where is this coming from? Mm. What is this about? And really peeling away the layers of the onion. And what I will say is that the more work I do, the more work I do with other people, and especially kind of on that sort of like diagnostic side of it, is that I... I continuously find that there are almost always many, many, many factors that are contributing to why something is the way that it is. And yeah. it's, never, it's never just one, or it's rarely, rarely, rarely just one thing. Yeah. Usually yeah. there's something that is coming from like ancestral stuff or karmic stuff. There's stuff that may be going on in the present moment. And then there's also potentially even stuff that's coming sort of like ripples from an intense event in the future that is so powerful that it's actually sending shockwaves back into the past. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And that's where a lot of empaths will, before an event is going to happen, like a lot of empaths, like before 9-11, people were feeling really uneasy. Mm. Um, you know, before the pandemic, a lot of people, a lot of empaths I knew were like, something's coming, something's coming, something's coming. Oh, wow. I can feel it. Yep, yep, yep. Um, you know, I have an ex another one, like in, in 
um, America, we had this shooting that happened at this um, nightclub in Miami called P- P- the Pulse Nightclub, where there were, it was a hate crime, basically. It was a gay bar, and mm. some jerks came in with guns and did what they do in the U.S. because, God bless our country, you know, people seem to like their guns. Yeah. But, um, but in, you know, many of us, like I was, I, because I'm networked with a bunch of other empaths, uh, a bunch of us were starting to feel this really, really wrong, weird, upset, distressed feeling, mm. like maybe 10, 10, you know, 10 to 20 days prior to this event. And a lot, of, so a lot of us, like I was in touch with a couple of people, like, are you feeling it? Are you sensing it? Is something like, and everybody's like, yeah, something's coming. Well, and when Pulse happened, we were all like, that was it. Because yeah. in my experience, when the event happens, it's kind of like a pressure valve being released on a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. All the steam, all the air gets let out of the balloon. Yeah. And suddenly all that intensity that you've been like, that nervous agitation, it just goes and settles right down. So interesting. So now we kind of move into the next topic. I want to talk about narcissism and empaths. And I think you have a slightly different take on the dynamic between the two. So why do you believe this is so pervasive and what can we do to change this? So, so part of my take on it is I think that there's an incredible amount of like poor empath, awful narcissist. Like there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of like, um, you know, like demonizing of the narcissist and like, I don't know, like making the empath, the poor, you know, poor widow empath who found the narcissist. Yeah. Like there's just a lot of that kind of like, oh, isn't that sad? And what I have noticed is that initially the thing about the narcissist is that, and I really believe from what I understand about narcissism, narcissism is basically a personality disorder that arises out of trauma that yeah. it is it is a response to distress and it is you know and in, interestingly in some ways empath and narcissist are almost like on opposite sides of the coin with each other yeah. that the empath is kind of like the person who is so sensitized to the world around us that we don't have any filters and shields and the narcissist on the other hand tends to be like so like insulated that they don't necessarily pick up on what's going on for other people. Like it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's the them show 24 mm-hmm. seven. But the thing is when the narcissist and the empath first meet in my, in my travels, in my talking, and this is, I'm not a scientist, nor do I play one on TV. So this mm. is all anecdotal, but I've talked to a lot of people about this. What I have noticed is that every single relationship between a narcissist and an empath starts as a match made in heaven. Yeah. It does not start off as a lousy relationship. No. It no. starts off as the best. If if it's a sexual relationship, it starts off as the very best sex you've ever had in your entire life. Legit. If, yeah. You know, it is so good. Yeah. Because the thing is, the empath is in a tape loop where they are feeding off of the affection, yeah. the adoration, and the attention that the narcissist is giving to the empath. 
Yeah. And then the narcissist is feeding off of the attention and the ador- and the adoration and the admiration and the joy and the delight that the empath is feeding back to them. Mm. And the thing is that the empath feels amazing because she or he or they are picking up on the energy from the narcissist which is nothing but yummy, like it's all good. Yeah. It's really delicious. Yep. And then, and the narcissist is picking up on all those strokes and all of that, like the empath just feeding the Mm. the narcissist's, like the narcissist's needs and feeding the narcissist's ego. Mm. And the thing is, this pattern can go on for a while. And so by the time that the empath and the narcissist have kind of like are invested in the relationship, there's time. There's like... They've, they've got, they've put some time into it. The sex has been amazing. The connection has been amazing. They both really believe that they love each other. Yeah. And the narcissist, I, I mean, I do believe narcissists are capable of love. Mm. And I believe that narcissists are, and I believe that narcissists like want, like I think that, I don't think that narcissists generally, like, I mean, yes, there are, there are like toxic narcissists and like the nefarious narcissists, but I think most narcissists have like, they want to love that other person. They want to be connected to that other person. And so I think both the narcissist and the empath have drunk the Kool-Aid and absolutely believe that they are in a match made in heaven, that Mm. they found their boo. They found Mm -hmm. their other person. Yeah. But the thing about the narcissist is that the narcissist generally needs a lot of attention and they need the attention to be focused on them. Mm. And so what I have seen again and again in having these conversations is that where things go horribly sideways is when the empath's life starts to kick into gear Mm. and the empath can no longer make the narcissist their number one priority 24-7. This almost always happens when the empath and the narcissist get married, and especially when the empath is the female, Mm -hmm. they have kids, Mm. and suddenly the priority goes from, you know, 24-7 doting on the narcissist Mm. to, we've got kids and i got to take care of them. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the narcissist is feeling abandoned and rejected and left behind, and there's this thing about human beings. This is something that really, like for me, this was like when I learned this, it rocked my world and it made so much sense. Human beings need attention and negative attention gives us strokes in a way that complete neglect does not. As human beings, we will seek out attention in order to feel confirmed, because mm. it is more, there's a term called being disconfirmed. It is more harmful to the human being to be disconfirmed than it is to be negatively affirmed. And so when somebody is not getting any attention, a child learns very, very early, if they're being neglected and ignored and abandoned by their parents, if they can get attention, even if it means that they're going to get slapped and hit around or yelled at, mm. they will act out in order to get attention. So if you look at the narcissist as a, and I, in my experience, so far I've not seen a narcissist do energetically is over five. 
in my experience, most of the time we're talking about somebody, somebody emotion between the ages, the emotional age of between probably like three and a half and maybe like six and a half or seven at the very oldest. Mm -hmm. But what I find is that generally I see again and again that narcissists tend to have a wounded, very, very heartbroken five-year-old inside of them who did not get their needs met. Mm. And what they discover at that age is that if they act out, they'll get attention. So then you progress forward into this marriage or into this partnership of some sort, and whether it's that the empath suddenly has the responsibilities of many children or of a kid, or the empath has the responsibilities of, like, say, suddenly they go back to school or they have a job or something that's making demands on them. Yeah. The narcissist is not getting the, they're, they're not getting their fix. They're not getting their attention, the need, their needs met. And so what they do is they just, they, it's Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. They turn mm. and they suddenly go from being awesome mm. to being impossible yeah. and acting out and becoming yeah. very, very abusive and vicious and cruel. And yeah. suddenly it's all your fault. But the empath hasn't changed. The empath is like, what just happened? Yeah. Yeah, Everything, legit. like it's sort of like the world just like, wait a second, I haven't done anything differently. Why are you suddenly turning on me? I really love that. I love love that you pointed that out because I myself have had a few narcissists, whether it's business partner, relationships, parental figures and what have you, and they literally do a 360 and you haven't changed. You're the same. So you don't actually give them a reason. You're you're honouring boundaries. You're getting on with your life. You're doing what's needed to keep the relationship healthy as well as keeping your own sense of self and doing your thing. And then all of a sudden, everything and nothing is good enough. And it's like... Nothing is good enough. Oh, I just remember going away um, to Bali with an ex-partner and I think twice we went away and, like, my friends that were on holiday with us could see that... They were impossible to be around. They're like, doesn't matter what you do. Like they just keep picking on everything that you're doing. And I'm like, well, I'm glad that you can see that because I thought I was the only one going crazy here, you know, and I was like, fuck, right, this is right. Like I, I just remember thinking to myself, is this really happening? Is this a dream? Like do people really stay in unhealthy relationships like this over a long period of time? Because I, yeah, I just couldn't. I was like, this is this is impossible for no reason. Like there's no reason for it to be like this. But you quickly learn it's right. nothing to do with you and everything to do with whatever's going on with them. Yeah, it's really hard to deal with. Right. Yeah. Well, and there's like, you know, there's all the gaslighting that happens and there's and the thing is that you know, I don't think I don't think most narcissists are deliberately grooming people. Like, I don't mm. think most narcissists understand how they're being, like, I don't think that most narcissists are out there to, like, just stick it to somebody. I do sincerely believe yeah, that narcissists I, want to be loved yeah. and connected as well. But yeah. they also have certain behaviors. And so there's a lot of invalidation. There's a lot of undermining. There's a lot of gaslighting. There's a lot of, like, no, that's not really what's happening. That's not what I'm doing. You know, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean you're saying this? Like, there can be a great deal of pushback. 
And the thing is, especially if they've done, they've used sort of more of the kind of classic like domestic violence techniques of getting mm. you isolated, getting you dependent, putting you in a situation where you're financially limited. Yeah. Then, you know, it's like, then it's like, you, how do you extract yourself from this difficult situation, especially like for people where you have got children, you're financially dependent. Mm. And also the other thing is that you have formed a bond energetically you are corded to this person energetically yeah. you are still connected to this person energetically if you have children with them mm -hmm. it's like you're sharing kids with these this person and you still love like there's a part of us and for the empath like it takes a lot for an empath to stop loving somebody yeah. and so there's that deep conf conflict between all of a sudden this relationship is behave this person is behaving in a completely different way but when I acknowledge it or say something about it, they just deny it and tell me that I'm crazy. Mm. And I and I'm invested. Like and and I'm confused mm -hmm. and I'm conflicted. You know, there's there's kind of a joke about, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the joke about, you know, guy walks walking down the street and one minute like he walks down the street and then two weeks later he wakes up in a hospital room and they're like, what, you know, like He's like, what happened? And like, oh, mm. you, you, you fell in a hole and you, you went unconscious. And so next day he's walking down the same street and, you know, or a couple of weeks later after he's recovered, he's walking down the same street. He happens to see the hole just as he falls into it. Yeah. Manages to, manages to come to in the hole, climbs up out of it. Mm. Third time he's walking down the street. This time he sees the hole and he walks around it takes until the fourth time to choose a different street. Mm. And I think that when it comes, I know for myself, like the first bad relationships with emotionally unavailable, somewhat narcissistic people um, that I was in, I like, I mean, it was like three years in that relationship. The next time around, it was like three months in that relationship. Mm. The next time around, it was three weeks in that relationship. And then the last time I sort of like gazed at it, I, it was like a literally a three hour conversation where it was kind of like this courtship was happening between me and this guy. And I was like, you batshit cray. I am not going to have anything to do with you. Thank you so much for telling me about how you like to play Russian roulette while you drank a scrap, you know, with your, with your revolver as you drank a glass of scotch, you know, mm -hmm. like... Total straight, like the, I'm almost a stranger, and the guy is telling me about like the crazy stuff that he's doing, and I was like, yeah. "Thank you for sharing. I'm going to take this under advisement, and I'm not going to go there." <laughs> Whereas when I was younger, yeah, I totally would have bought into like I mean, I would have, I totally would have like breathed in the smoke that he was blowing up my butt, yeah. and I would have been charmed, and I would have gone there, but. You know, the point of this is to say, I think that it is a process where we go from falling into it and finding ourselves in, in it to being able to recognize, oh, this is what this is and I don't need to be going here anymore. Yeah. Cool. And then eventually just attracting a completely different kind of person. Yeah. 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 Which, you know, it can be a process to work through all of that deep trauma healing, but oh, it's yeah. well worth it. It's well worth it. And you'll just know when you break that final karmic cycle, because you might notice that you might have a big break in your dating life at that point where once you elevate yes. your standards and you start telling the universe, you know, this is what I want, this is 
you know, you're focusing more on what you want and what your new standards are, what the qualities and values in that person will be, then obviously there's not going to be as many options coming around, but, you know, because you've made it really clear, but you've also done the energetic healing and stuff that comes with that too. So then how do you help people overcome that karmic cycle with attracting the narcissistic kind of personalities? Mm, what a good question. And I totally want to just concur that my experience is that you need a little bit of downtime between breaking those cycles and getting mm. into healthy relationships. That was my experience as well. Yeah. And I actually, you know, this is kind of not the answer to your question, but like one thing that really helped me was Janet Jackson's song, What Have You Done For Me Lately? Like whenever I was sort of courting somebody or checking out a possible potential partner, I would sort of tune into the vibe of that song mm. because there's this quality of it of like, it's not about like, because I grew up always, always, always looking at whether I was attractive enough, whether I was lovable enough, whether they liked me, whether they wanted to be with me. Yeah. And one of the big, big, so one of the big pivots for me at the beginning of it was not looking at whether I was good enough for them, but turning the tables and asking the question, is he, she, you know, they good enough for me? And really looking at what have they done for me lately? And and also having some boundaries around not going, not jumping into bed immediately. Yeah. Because, and I'm not saying this is a prude at all. I mean, I, you know, believe me, like I, you could tell me anything, <laughs> like, like nothing phases me when it yeah. comes to, to that world. Yeah. But what I have come to believe is that the problem with having sex early on in a relationship is that you do not know who the person is. And as soon as you start having sex, you start weaving energetic threads with that other person mm-hmm. and you hormonally become invested. Like mm. the pheromones start to sink in yeah. and you lose your ever love in mind mm-hmm. and you no longer have common sense and you no longer have the ability to discern if somebody's appropriate. Mm-hmm. So, what I started to do was back off on the jumping into bed immediately mm-hmm. and instead watching, like taking a little bit of time. And so this is part of how we break the cycles is we make, we set some, we, first off, we have to choose because we might still have those patterns underneath that are affecting us and triggering us and getting us to be inclined to be impulsive. So we have to choose to make a decision that's going to be different, that we're not just going to have sex, that we're not just going to be like, oh my God, I'm in love. But instead, we're going to give ourselves, like we're going to take a beat. We're going to take time to get to know someone. We're going to take time to get to know, and we're going to scrutinize them. We're going to, you know, we're going to give them enough rope to hang themselves. Now, at this point, I gave, you know, I met my husband. He and I connected in January of 2000, like early January of 2000. I've been giving him enough rope for the last 22 and a half years. He still hasn't hung himself. But, you know, the thing was that instead of it being like, I want to find, like, I want to please you. For the first time in my life, I decided to look at it as, are you pleasing me? Yeah. You know, and just watching that behavior. So that's, you know, I feel like this kind of ties into the like, okay, so how do we break the karmic cycles? And, you know, your mileage may vary. I am really a big fan of EFT tapping, which is why we're coming back and having another conversation about this. Yep, yep, yep. 
in my experience, I have never found a more effective tool for addressing the traumas, for addressing the triggers, for addressing the stuff that is basically like making us form faulty conclusions, causing us to be impulsive, causing mm. us to choose to do things that are not working. But we can also do like, I love also doing, I also am an, an Akashic Record um, practitioner. Um, right. And so yeah. doing work with the Akashic Records, going in and being like, what is it about this pattern? What is this attraction to narcissists that is repeating itself over and over again in this lifetime? Is there a karmic connection to it? And with working right. with the Akashic Records, we could find out that it's not our karma. It could be an inherited family pattern. It could be something that we've repeated from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. But looking at, okay, so here's the roots of this. And then, you know, working, the thing about the record halls is that they are not only filled with the information, but they are also filled with all of the technology and the resources and the rooms for healing the stuff as well. Like the yeah. record halls are spectacular. And wow. I'm a really big fan of using the Violet Flame in particular for just offering all of it up to the Violet Flame and letting mm. it be burned and transmuted and transformed so that that can be released. There's also like doing like emotion code work. There's also doing like, you know, addition, like hypnosis. There's like, I mean, we could, we could just go on and on and on yeah. about all of the different modalities yeah. that we yeah. can use to address mm. the karmic issues. Yeah. Okay. And I sense that you could probably talk all day as well about it because you know so much about it. But what we're going to I absolutely do, could. Yeah. We're <laughs> going to, what we'll do, we'll come back. So guys, Look, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. There's a lot of information there, right? But join us next week because we are going to talk more about the Akashic Records and the EFT tapping, which is going to actually provide you with information about how to overcome this. So today is more about the sort of what is it, and then next week is about how do we get past it. So, um, Jen, why don't we just wrap it up for now, and then we'll hit more of the depth. That sounds perfect. Next week. So... Uh, look, I noticed that um, you've got some amazing resources and tools for our listeners, right? How can people reach you and claim their free gift? Okay, so the easiest way to get everything started is just jump over to empathicmastery.com. Yes. If you want to get a copy of the book, it's really simple, empathicmasterybook.com for the book. And if you want to listen to the podcast, empathicmasteryshow.com. And in any of those places, if you just look for the sign up to get your free empathic safety, safety guide, yeah. you can get that. It will also lead you to being able to join my free Facebook group where mm -hmm. I do monthly master classes on topics that are near and dear to my heart and really helpful resources and tools and information for other empaths. So Amazing. empathicmastery.com, empathicmasterybook, and empathicmasteryshowall.com's best way to get in touch. Fantastic. I love that. Thanks again so much, Jen. Oh, so Amanda, thank you so much. This has been so juicy. Such ah, a rich it really conversation. Has. Yeah. It really has. Yeah. It really, really has. Um, look, Guys, if today's episode truly resonated with your current phase in life, please give us a five-star rating on either 
uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share this to your stories and tag me on Instagram at amanda.mfamary.mickliffe and be sure to reach out to Jen and mention that you heard of them through the Empowered Women's Podcast. Um, Again, Jen, thanks so much and um, we'll catch you next week. Absolutely.